And I want to tell you, the changes in Washington are very exciting. You saw John Bolton. You remember John Bolton. He's going to be President Trump's national security advisor. You think he changed his mind? No, in fact, if anything, John Bolton has become more determined that, that, that there needs to be regime change in Iran, that the nuclear agreement needs to be burned, and that you need to be in charge of that country, the right policy for Iran, for every good, decent government in the world, is regime change. Regime change. Regime change. Regime change. Absolutely. Hello and welcome back to the Global Inquirer. We are an undergraduate research podcast that uses case studies to examine global trends and how they're impacting real lives. This week, Ari Gassimian, a third-year government and econ major, double major, is here in the studio. So thanks for coming out this week. Thanks for having me, Balthazar. Yeah, no problem. So this week, we're looking at the MEK. Can you explain what the MEK is? Yeah, so the MEK, or the Mujahideen Khalq, is the People's Mujahideen Organization of Iran or the MEK as we abbreviate it. So the MEK was founded in 1965 by leftist Iranian students. It was a Marxist Islamist organization, which against the Shah's monarchy at the time, which was very Western allied, kind of a capitalist and becoming more and more secular as the years went on. The MEK was both kind of a populist movement and an Islamist movement and a Marxist movement. So it was in that milieu kind of what i was reading and they also had some kind of feminist ideology mixed in there too this is like a very unique group so we can get back to that later but the the feminist trope that they use is i suspect kind of a a jab mainly oriented at the the current government it's kind of a false label so they opposed the shah and they had um something to do with the revolution am i correct yes so they were one of many groups that as the revolution was kind of coming to a T in 78 and 79 were against the Shah and they came into government. Um, they were allied with one of the figures who would end up becoming prime minister um, in the first uh, government in 79 around the time it was being declared the Islamic Republic. But... Um, in the interceding period, kind of before that, one thing to take into account is they were one of the more violent groups. There were some people that were protesting. It wasn't as organized as we kind of would like to tend to think of things, but they were one of the organized groups in the 70s, and they were doing like bombings and attacks. They would attack both like Western executives, U.S. officials, even the gates of the British embassy of all things. Um, and killed a lot of both Iranians and Americans who were in the country. And their, their dealings with the hostage crisis in the American embassy is kind of ambiguous. They claim they weren't a part of it, but documents say otherwise. Yeah, um, I didn't really look into too much of that, but again, it's one of those things where it's, it could be the case. Right. Um, but there... Like right. Um, it seems like a lot of what I was reading about this group that is the case. It's very nebulous territory, a lot of denial, some evidence um, on both sides, uh, even in scholarly debate. No one really knows what is ever going on. Yeah, I think nebulous is a very good word um, to use to describe kind of what we know about the MEK. 
they were involved with the revolution and kind of helped depose the Shah. Uh, you know, where did that leave them post-revolution in the formation of the government? Yeah, so after the revolution, the cleric who was kind of the paramount leader at the time and would become a more and more consolidating power as the stages went forward, uh, Rollah Khomeini, the Ayatollah Khomeini, was very suspicious of the MEK and their tactics. They were a lot more personality cult driven around the leader of the MEK at the time, Masud Rajavi, which he found suspicious. And they were also a lot more violent and hot-headed almost to kind of apply a gloss we'd use today that he was suspicious of them as a kind of reliable coalition partner, if you will. So they were a lot of MEK supporters at the time kind of after that spate of terrorism were exiled or killed or imprisoned. So after that initial kind of wariness by the Ayatollah, he outright exiles them. They move to Paris in 1981, I believe, and they establish what's known as the National Council of Resistance of Iran, the the government in exile where they kind of claim some sort of authority over Iranian politics, but with no legitimacy at all. Uh, whereupon Jacques Chirac, who just recently died, uh, actually exiles them once again, and this leads them to Iraq. Yes. So by this point in our history, the Iran-Iraq war is underway, which, as a background note, uh, sensing the weakness of the Iranian state, Saddam Hussein invades Iran over the Iran-Iraq border and begins a long and deadly uh, conflict. And at this point, Saddam Hussein offers aid and comfort to the MEK who take this offer and actually fight on the Iraqi side in the Iran-Iraq war. Right. I was reading Operation Eternal Light had over 2,000 MEK members kind of brutally slaughtered um, in kind of a suicidal attack almost. So he was kind of using them, basically. So yes and no. Well, yes, obviously, in that sense. But it was also to his benefit and to the MEK's benefit, I guess, by their defined goals at the time, you could say, because it was a a very, in, in terms of human rights, it wasn't a great conflict because you had both sides with a lot of, mainly the Iraqi side, actually, my evidence of bias comes out here, but uh, you use a lot of chemical weapons and like landmines against both civilian populations and against like infantry forces. So what the Iranian side would do would send young conscripts often in their early teens to just walk over the landmines. And so the MEK were kind of going against the young conscripts. So they weren't really doing much of a strategic good for the Iraqi side, but were really harming their image with the Iranian people, because if those are the primary casualties and they're being seen as the other side right, of that, it's not really... Bad PR. Exactly, you could say. Yikes. Um, but don't worry, because DLA Piper's coming to fix that, but we'll get there later. They they were a well-organized group. Uh, they had you know, numerous attacks on, you know, different Iranian entities throughout the world. They had a coordinated attack in 10 different Western countries against embassies. Uh, They kind of rushed the Iranian embassy to the UN in in New York City with, you know, wielding knives and spray painting kind of anti-Iran or pro-MEK slogans, smashing computers. So they were kind of a sprawling organization that, 
you know, it was up to no good in many places. Where are they now, Ari? Where they are now um, is Albania, as you would believe it. Love so it. this gets into an interesting subplot also with regard to their terrorist designation. Following their spate of attacks in the 70s through 1992, when they would carry out knife attacks on the Iranian mission to the UN in New York, they were designated a foreign terrorist organization by the United States Department of State and also by several other governments, which is a, is a formal designation like Al-Qaeda or the Taliban that they are a terrorist organization. So when they were in Iraq during the U.S. invasion of that country, that's where their base was at the time, outside of Baghdad. And the new prime minister of Iraq, Nouri al-Maliki, um, who was at the time new, I guess, not new anymore, was looking to ally more with Iran and with various insurgencies in the region. It looked like the MEK remainder, who had their camp there, were in grave danger, which would seem to be the case as they were an insurgency supported by the previous regime, enemies of the regime that the new government wants to ally with, which put the U.S. in an awkward position as being the new power in the region. Do we let them get killed? Do we give them safe haven? So what ends up happening is that the Obama administration, um, actually in 2012, delists them as a uh, terrorist organization and allows them to get uh, resettled with, through the UN refugee agencies in Albania. Um, and the kind of a new camp is built up there. Basically, just quick recap, they were labeled a terrorist organization, 70s, 80s, 90s, involved in the Iraq-Iran war on the side of the Iraqis, trying to usurp the current Iranian government, pretty much handily defeated uh, alongside the Iraqis, and then were given protected status soon thereafter. So, kind of on that point, they weren't really handily defeated. The Iran-Iraq war was a, a stalemate. So kind of everybody ended up back where they were, just millions dead. Right, but the MEK in particular were given protected status and then relocated by the United States and the UN after this terrorist organization label was retracted. Yeah. All right. So there's, but there's also kind of like at the same time that this is going on, there's various other streams, which I kind of want to get into. So while this, they were given this protected status under one of the Geneva Conventions was to protect them in Iraq when they were kind of caught in this crossfire. And the only way the U.S. could practically help them, actually legally, if the U.S. could provide them any help would be to delist them. So it was a little bit of a political necessity and a legal necessity. But at the same time, since the 80s and 90s through the present day, there have been streams of paid speeches and lobbying by various important U.S. officials um, on behalf of the MEK and or the National Council of Resistance of Iran, which is basically a political front for the MEK. Um, their lobbying group. Yes. Um, and kind of how they would do that is interesting because the there were actually multiple investigations underway. The Treasury Department had sent subpoenas to a bunch of law firms and former politicians. And those investigations all ended in 2012 when the designation was lifted. 
So after this delisting as a terrorist organization, is there any blowback from the general public? I mean, this, as you said, was a group that carried out a successful terrorist attack on you know, U.S. soil, various nations in the EU. And it, this was just kind of met with a passiveness? Yes. The only people who were really and notably heated about this uh, were the Iranian government. The problem was that in that political moment where it was kind of you would, you had Rudy Giuliani and a, a former Democratic senator from New Jersey, former Democratic uh, governor of Pennsylvania and DNC chair, people like John Bolton, a incredibly long and actually kind of scary list of U.S. officials who were publicly lobbying for this group to be delisted, and then the group was delisted. So kind of in that U.S. political frame, there wasn't really much blowback because the people saying that we shouldn't delist this were, it's kind of, there's not really like two sides. Right, there were mainly just proponents, not many opponents, just because of the nature of the situation. And kind of the reason that all of these, this hodgepodge of, former Republican and Democratic elected officials are advocating for the MEK is that they want the ouster of the current Iranian regime, which for good reason, but they claim that the MEK will be the the next thing. Right. You can't really depose a government without having something to fill the vacuum. Exactly. Exactly. And it's kind of to to be clear to our listeners, the MEK is crazy. And not by any stretch of the imagination um, capable of running the government of Iran, a country of 80-some million people. This is not to say that the current regime is somehow the good guy in this. They're also very bad. And it's not something that seems to span the political aisle, as you say. It's You have John Bolton, Rudy Giuliani, but then also Howard Dean, former um, Democratic governors in Pennsylvania and Vermont, like you say. It's just, as we said before, nebulous. And it's also complex to kind of continue along that train because they were the money, kind of the where the money comes from. And there was a one law firm in particular, DLA Piper, that was served with subpoenas that the National Council of Resistance of Iran was the client, quote unquote. And if you one is lobbying in the United States, or advocating on behalf of a foreign principle, whether it's a foreign government or any other kind of foreign political front, they have to register with the Department of Justice. And so the registrant was the NCRI, um, and sometimes there weren't even registrations, which made it even worse. But kind of the source of the funds was always the same place, even before the listing was lifted. So there were prominent U.S. politicians being paid five-figure speaking fees by a group that the United States government deemed to be a terrorist organization. And where does all this money come from? We don't know. Um, Thank you, Ari. We don't know. They claim, as do the politicians when asked by reporters, like, how can you accept this money from a group that has killed Americans? They say, oh, I thought it was all volunteers paying it. I think that's usually what Giuliani says is, I thought it was volunteers paying the fees that really they're funding it's very opaque we don't know right and then so bringing us into more of like a present day context it does make sense that someone like john bolton 
Trump's former national security advisor would have some interest in the group. He is notably like a war hawk. He's always detested the current regime in Iran and does probably within himself support you know regime change and has publicly called for it as we've noted um, in a past episode. Do you think it's a hundred percent because of these speaking fees or do you think there is some ideology on behalf of these kind of US government officials involved? So first I want to unpack uh, the phrase you use there regime change. So I was reading a, a Brookings Institution um, kind of policy analysis paper. It's pretty dated now. It was from around 10 years ago as the Obama administration was coming into office. And it was talking about what to make of Iran. And this was before the Iran deal, before sanctions on nuclear things were ratcheted up again, kind of as Iran was in the political specter in the political sphere as kind of the specter of the next war in the Middle East, question mark. And the paper talked about regime change in three different ways. You can kind of have a velvet revolution, which is should the U.S. support a policy to bring about a popular uprising or popular revolution, a nonviolent movement where people would stream into the streets and after X amount of time, the government would just throw up their arms and say, okay, fine, we give in to some set of demands. There is regime change in that the U.S. could adopt a policy of inspiring or supporting an insurgency, such as the MEK, and there's the policy of supporting a military coup, which is literally just for the current Revolutionary Guard or Army to take power. And this kind of falls in that middle category of supporting an insurgency. Um, and in all of these cases, the U.S. would need some kind of proxy when we do a regime change. And the only group that comes to mind in terms of the insurgency front is the MEK. They're the only organized military or terrorist insurgency or resistance related to Iran. They're not in Iran, really, which we can get to, but... They're the only group that has kind of the potential muscle and might membership to you know, be a reasonable proxy. Yes. On that note, there is no real popular support for such an insurgency or for the MEK in Iran, which is kind of the other side of why the, the Bolton-Giuliani Kedra in 2019 is crazy is because they're arguing for democracy in Iran. We need to bring them liberty and freedom, and Mike Pompeo is saying something ridiculous that is clearly for domestic consumption. The, the point being that there is no base of support for the group in country. So to install this group would be a purely undemocratic process. Precisely. There's a lot of irony. Think about it. A historical parallel to kind of what the, the Giuliani-Bolton clique have been arguing for it can be best thought of in terms of the Bay of Pigs invasion um, during the beginning of the Kennedy administration where kind of a gang of uh, Cuban exiles in South Florida were sent by the CIA after a brief bit of training to the island with the hopes that they would begin a counter-revolution and just pick up popular support as they went and establish a new government. Of course, it failed spectacularly. But this is one step removed from that almost. It's even dumber. Forty years have elapsed, and we think this can work. Like, it 
on its face has to sound ridiculous, which is why kind of to your question of why do they argue for this? I don't know. It's the best answer. Well, that's all we have for you this week. As always, like, comment, subscribe. Do all those good things. Follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you really get your podcasts. Next week, we will be joined by Emma Ross, and we will learn a little bit more about mandatory military conscription around the world. Uh, So tune in for that, and see you next week.